The year was 1942. It was the heart of World War II. And during this time, a 25-year-old Chinese seaman named Poon Lim was working as a steward on a British merchant ship, the SS Bin Lemont. And after leaving Cape Town, the vessel was torpedoed by a German U-boat near South Africa's coast. Well, very quickly, everything began to unravel. Poon Lim quickly grabbed a, a life vest, and he jumped overboard just about the time that the huge boat exploded and went down. For two hours, he floated with just this life preserver that he had, wondering his fate there off of South Africa in the Atlantic Ocean. Until he saw over on the distance, he wasn't for sure, the waves were bobbing him up and down, but he saw what looked like a life raft. And so with every effort, he went over, and sure enough, it was a life raft. There was nobody in it, but he found some supplies. And so climbing aboard, he found and took inventory. He had a canvas sail. He had some chocolate, a bag of sugar, some flares, a jug of water, and a tin of hard biscuits and a flashlight. So for the next seven days, he chose to do his best to survive. It wasn't until a week later that he spotted the first forms of human life when he saw a ship go by, and he did everything in his power to get the attention of this boat, but it continued traveling on. The sickening feeling that he had not been spotted, nor would he be. Then he spotted some U.S. Navy patrol planes, and he sent off some more of his flares to try and get their attention, but again, no use. And so he waited and waited and waited. Each day, he'd have a ration of a biscuit. He'd have some of that fresh water. He tried to gather and collect more in this sail that he had and, and funnel it back in. Perhaps one of the more creative things he did was he took his flashlight apart and he found that spring in the bottom, and he reworked the spring to make a fish hook. And he took some of that rope apart so it was a little thinner, and he did his best to put a little biscuit on there with some of the hemp out of the rope, and he began fishing for fish. And out of the can that he had, he used that to slice the few fish that he would catch, and he would dry them in the sun. And so each and every day, he tried to do his best to get by. In fact, he even determined, in order to keep my muscle strength, I'm going to have to exercise. And so he would get out, he'd lash himself to the raft, and he would swim. And this continued to go on day after day after day, week after week, month after month. Should he continue to hang on? Should he continue to wait? Or should he just give up? No, he was determined. And he kept waiting, and he kept waiting until in April, April 5, 1943, about four and a half months later, 
his waiting was over as he drifted up on the shores of Brazil, setting a record of 133 days alone on the Atlantic. And he says, I hope no one will ever have to break my record. <laughs> have you ever had to wait? Are you good at waiting? Men, I ask you, are you good at waiting? Maybe once or twice you've honked the car horn. For most of us, we just do that once. <laughs> but to wait, and to wait, and to wait, and to check, and to wait, how long are you willing to wait? I'm reminded of another story in Scripture that I want to look at this morning where God makes a promise to Abraham at 75 years of age in Genesis chapter 12. He says, go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you to you and your descendants. I will give you this land to all the families of the earth. You will be blessed. What a promise. Praise the Lord. Honey, we're going to have a son. God told us it would be so. Yet he and Sarah waited and waited and waited. Nothing seemed to happen. Nothing seemed to change. Not just a few months, but years passed. One year, two years, three years. Finally, by year 10, they're beginning to get a little anxious. Patriarchs and Prophets says, a delay was permitted to test his faith. But they came, became unwilling to continue to wait, so they decided to take matters into their own hands to help fulfill God's word. Rather than let him do it in his own time, in his own way. And so after 11 years from the initial promise, Ishmael was born through Hagar. And to this day, the effects of that decision rage on. But God affirmed that the promised child would come, in fact, through Sarah. And so they were to continue to wait and wait and wait. Another several years, five years, six years, 14 years, they waited once again until finally, at the ripe age of 100, Abraham was given a son named Isaac. 25 years since the first promise was made to him. God had called Abraham early on to be the father of the faithful, and his life was to stand as a model, as a pattern, an example of exemplary faith to all succeeding generations. But like so many of us, his faith faltered and he showed distrust in God. Now, he didn't turn his back on God in a decided way. 
It was not a full rejection of God, but it was an eroding distrust of God's plan, God's timing, God's purpose, God's methods. It was a seemingly subtle doubt. Abraham still attended church. He still paid a faithful tithe. He was still part of church life. But in his inner core, his faith was waning. Time and trial revealed his lack of faith. Lord, you seem to be struggling. I'll help you generate an heir through Hagar. Lord, they'll kill me if they take my wife, or they'll certainly kill me for my wife because she's so beautiful, so I'll just simply say she's my sister. Have time or trials ever worn down your faith in God as you wait and wait? Maybe you're not turning your back on him. You're still here bodily, but your heart Maybe it's your heart that's drifting. Your patience is wearing thin. The trust you once had, you feel is faltering. If so, I challenge you to hang on, friends. Abraham had to learn to wait on the Lord under that starry night sky. Joseph had to learn to wait on the Lord in a prison cell. Moses had to learn to wait on the Lord in the desert. David had to learn to wait on the Lord in a cave. If your trust is faltering, hang on. Learn the difficult lesson to wait on the Lord, to be patient, to trust blindly. Patriarchs and Prophets 147, we read, that he might reach the highest standard... God subjected him to another test, the closest, yes, the hardest, which man was ever called to endure. And you know the story. Let's take a moment to look at it just now. It's in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, and we'll begin in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Genesis chapter 22, beginning verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Notice right here from the beginning, the focus is on who? Abraham. God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And in verse 2, then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Now, the land of Moriah is what we now know as Jerusalem. In fact, 2 Chronicles 3.1, we read that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. 
So that's the same spot that our story is going to unfold this morning. But from where Abraham is now in Beersheba, it was a good 50 miles away, this three-day journey that we're going to read about. And by this time, Abraham is 120 years old. His son is a vibrant 20-year-old young man. Now, finally, Abraham's long-desired, long-awaited-for son is entering into the time that God had promised, and this fulfillment is at hand. Abraham hopes to see this coming to fruition. But it's at this time that a trial greater than all others is placed before him. Can you imagine such a strange word from the Lord? Take now your son, who you waited for, for 25 years, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now you know the devil was right there, suggesting that he was deceived, for the divine law commands, thou shalt not kill. Certainly God would never ask such an absurd thing. But Abraham had had conversations with God. He had come to know his voice. This was clear. Or was it? I imagine Abraham overwhelmed, stepping outside of his tent that night and looking up at that calm brightness of an unclouded heaven, remembering the promises made now nearly 50 years ago that his seed should be as innumerable as the stars. But how could these promises be fulfilled through Isaac if he were to put him to death? I imagine Abraham was tempted to think it was just a delusion And in his doubt, in his anguish, I imagine Abraham dropping to his knees and praying like he had never prayed before, searching for some confirmation if he must perform this terrible duty, hoping for another encounter of a heavenly messenger for further direction. But nothing came. Just quiet. And I imagine after an intense night of prayer, of wrestling, of crying out to the Lord, with the darkness shutting him in, I imagine he continues to hear the voice of God. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom you love. And without understanding, without comprehension of why God is doing this thing, He submits. Wow. That he might reach this highest standard. God subjected him to another test. This is an overwhelmingly great trial, is it not? But he submits to the voice of God, and he's convicted that the command must be obeyed without delay. And how do we know this? Because the very next verse, he gets Isaac, and they set out. But before we get to that, I have to share this heart-wrenching passage from Patriarchs and Prophets, 
page 150 and 151. It says, returning to his tent, he went to the place where Isaac was sleeping, the deep, untroubled sleep of youth and innocence. I don't know about you, but we have this tradition in our home before we go to bed at night. Elizabeth says, come on. We've got to make sure all the kids are tucked in. And we go to their room, and we make sure sometimes they're, they're sprawled out, and we have to put the covers back on. We feel their cheeks. Yeah, they're going to be cold. And, and we just look at them and stare at them. And the, I tell you, kids are the cutest, not when they're making noise. but when they're asleep. And sometimes we just marvel. I don't know how many pictures we've taken in the dark. This untroubled sleep of youth and innocence. So he returns to his tent. He goes back to the place where Isaac is sleeping, this untroubled, innocent sleep. And for a moment, the father looked upon the dear face of his son, then turned tremblingly away. He went to the side of Sarah, who was also sleeping. Should he awaken her, that she might once more embrace her child? Should he tell her of God's requirement? He longed to unburden his heart to her and share with her this terrible responsibility, but he was restrained by the fear that she might hinder him. Isaac was her joy and pride. Her life was bound up in him, and the mother's love might refuse the sacrifice. As a father, as a parent, can you feel the weight of this trial? Perhaps some here today know that feeling all too well. You know the pain of losing a child of giving up the one you hold so dear. And you understand the heartache, the pain, the intense grief that Abraham is perhaps feeling at this moment. The incredible pull upon his heart, his very soul. Yet Abraham submits. He submits. He didn't accept the inevitable. He had a choice. He could have spared his son. He could have changed the outcome. But he submits. Picking up our story in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Three days to agonize. Three days of thoughtful conversation. Three days of keeping this horrible secret. Three nights, I imagine, of untiring prayer. Perhaps echoing the words of David as he wept, oh, my son, my son, if I could only die in your your place, my son, my son. 
three nights of hoping for some word from the Lord that his trial was enough that the youth might return unharmed to his mother. Yet no word from heaven ever came. Just the resounding promise found in Genesis 22. And Isaac shall thy seed be called, a seed numberless as the grains of the sand upon the shore. So on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. In verse 5, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I, we will go up yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Did you catch that? We will come back to you. Abraham looked beyond that which was seen, believing as it states in Hebrews eleven nineteen, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. I don't know. I don't understand. I have not been able to piece this together, but we're going to go. We're going to submit to the call of God. And by faith, we will return. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Can you imagine? How these words must have pierced Abraham's heart. But even yet, he could not tell his son. And so Abraham, verse 8, said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And so at the appointed place, they built the altar, they laid the wood on it. And then I imagine with trembling voice, Abraham unfolds to his son the divine message. With terror and amazement, Isaac learns his fate. He could easily escape. Abraham was old, not to mention physically and emotionally exhausted from the past three days. But Isaac offers no resistance. And as the purpose of God was opened before him, he yielded in trusting obedience. He too willingly submits. I don't know how long they cried there together. I don't know what their parting words were. But the time came. And we read in verse 10 And when Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. This is the salvation story. Instead of his son. Instead of his son. The ram is provided instead of his son. Now, because of your sin and mine, our guilt, our shame, our iniquity, our pride, our ambition, our conceit, we deserve death. But in our place, Jesus, the lamb, is provided. Verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. This is the Christmas story. The Lord will provide. This is the nativity scene. This is our hope. This is our assurance of a better day. That the Lord will provide. And verse 16, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham's a different person. Here we see the faith of Abraham. An example of implicit trust in God that God longed to show the world. This time he obeys the command to the letter. It's a different Abraham. But this story also teaches us something else. Again, from Patriarchs and Prophets 154, the agony which he endured during the dark days of that fearful trial was permitted that he might understand from his own experience something of the greatness of the sacrifice made by the infinite God for man's redemption. God gave his son to a death of agony and shame. The angels who witnessed the humiliation and the soul anguish of the son of God were not permitted to interpose. As in the case of Isaac, there was no voice to cry, it is enough. What stronger proof can be given of the infinite compassion and love, she writes, of God the Father. What does 2 Corinthians 9, 12 say? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Who could give Christ but God? It saddens me to think of those who picture, whose picture of God the Father is some harsh, exacting God with little feeling towards fallen man because this is not the correct picture of God the Father. No, God so loved the world that he gave. 
his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's God the Father. 1 John 4, 9, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's at this time of year that we think so much about Jesus coming as a child, taking on human flesh, on becoming Emmanuel, God with us. And that's amazing, that's fitting, that's appropriate. But this morning, I want to look at this incredible gift from the Father's perspective. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Who can estimate the value of a gift such as this? If God had given a thousand worlds or all angelic hosts, I submit that it would have been less than what he's given. Yet this indescribable gift was necessary and was the only gift that could fully meet our need. So as it is with many parents, an in Incredible sacrifice is made at tremendous cost with far too little regard by the receiver. But the reality is that this indescribable gift is the only way we are pardoned and cleansed, sanctified, adopted, and promised to be part of that wonderful reunion in heaven. And who did God give this gift? None other than fallen human beings. Man made a little lower than the angels, but who soon fell much lower. And then the gift came. What a marvelous return for man's apostasy. When the cry of humanity was for sternest punishment, heaven's response was Jesus of Nazareth. Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And Paul cries later, thanks be to God. How can we thank God enough for such a gift as this? How shall we respond? As one put it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I believe throughout eternity we will praise God for the gift unspeakable. Are you thankful this morning for this unspeakable gift? Are you thankful for the love of God the Father? and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, who gave all for you and for me? And have you accepted this indescribable gift? What a terrible thought that this unspeakable gift, the gift that no one can estimate its value, may be rejected. 
What an unspeakable folly. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That giver, that living water is our justification. That gift is our sanctification. That gift is our glorification. And it is all together a gift. It's by God's grace that we are saved through faith. In no sense can we ever say we have purchased Christ, nor have any merits of our own attracted him, nor by any powers of ours did we win him. But rather, God saw us in our lost state and gave his son, not from an offended king or a stern judge, but from a loving father who we know through his gift. A priceless, unspeakable, indescribable gift. A gift of pardon a gift of victory, a gift of peace, a gift of eternal life. This Christmas holiday, I invite you to submit and humbly accept his gift, the gift of his precious, precious son, Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it truly is an indescribable gift that you have given to us. I cannot begin to imagine what it must have been like to give of your son to a world that would spit in his face, despise and reject him. But you knew it was the only way that we could be with you. And so you gave. You submitted and offered us this unspeakable gift. We don't deserve it, we're not worthy of it, but by the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, we accept it. To simply say thank you seems too trite, too minuscule for such a huge gift. So in response, we give you our lives that you may mold us, change us, fashion us after your character, that in some way we may be able to glorify you, is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, your precious Son, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.